welcome to the Thought Echoes podcast, where we have an opportunity to listen in as people reflect on their relationship with their thoughts and their creative work and how it's changed since their brain injury. My name is Beth Bonnes, host of the Thought Echoes podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this month's interview. Hello, my name is Mimi Hayes. I'm a comedian, author, and brain injury survivor. I am, uh, you know, almost nine years out from my first uh, stroke. And when I say first stroke, I mean I had a second one uh, recently. But I am doing the best I can. It's certainly not as bad as the first one. Um, but I guess lightning does strike uh, twice in the same place. So I'm excited to be here, excited to talk about it and uh, answer all your questions, Beth. Thank you for joining Mimi. I did not know about the second one. So you had a brain bleed slash leak with your first one. And mm -hmm. what was the second one? Same thing, same, same. place. Um, hasn't gotten nearly the size it did the first time around, but it's a cavernous angioma, uh, clump of cells that can grow anywhere in your body. And um, oddly enough, I was in Scotland this second time. Um, it was around November. I had a really bad migraine and I thought, oh, when I get back home, you know, I should probably go see about that. And uh, I was living in LA at the time. And so I got back to LA and I made an appointment with my doctor. She said, yeah, we could do it. We could do a CT scan uh, just for kicks, you know, because I said, yeah, I I'd like to do that, uh, knowing my history and um, walked in, was expecting to walk back out. They rolled up with a wheelchair, said, come with us. We're I'm like, is that for me? What are you doing with that wheelchair? <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> uh, so they, they found the second bleed there. Um, it is on the left side of my cerebellum. Um, and currently it's stable. So, uh, I'm on the six month MRI plan. So I will be back in the States, um, around January, February for a checkup scan, but we're stable. We're sitting with that, that leak sitting on it. <laughs> so do you, are you so, on like blood thinners or what medication, just blood pressure medicine? No, no, no nothing like that. I mean, ah. this is one of those fun, like wait and see things that, although the first time around, I should say it was on um, steroids. I was on some, um, some steroids because it was causing so much swelling um, in my brain. So it wasn't exactly like a stroke that causes the immediate damage. It oh. was like this leaking process that was swelling my brain so I was having all these stroke-like symptoms I was having you know I lost control of the left side of my body lost a ton of weight I was seeing double um mm -hmm. eventually sideways lost my taste oh. clumsy you know you think I was drunk half oh. the time uh so, oh. so it's just one of those really wild things you think is is never going to happen to you um until it does and then twice and do they know the cause of it they have no idea. Oh. Uh, they've ruled out like, uh, I want to say heredity, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Genetics. They've Genetics. ruled that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they've ruled that out. So it's just, I'm just really good at just growing little leaks in my head. Oh. Yes. It's a skill of mine. Oh God. Well, you're very optimistic or at least making lots of lemonade out of um, mm -hmm. the uncertainty of 
the event and recurrence and it's just part of your your as you said the six month MRI club Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ah, so in the spirit of uh, thought echoes and talking to stroke brain injury survivors, um, I'm really fascinated about our individual relationship with our thoughts. And uh, as I mentioned with mine, watching all the watching myself not talk as I'm having all these thoughts and telling a story was uh, gift is kind of like a, a crazy way to put at it but I mean to to watch myself experiencing at the time and I don't know if my balance was off because I was sitting but I had the you know sparkles and uh, I had a claw when I tried to write and whatnot but the being having to downshift into what's going on in my head because I couldn't communicate out you know you're kind of on slow I was on slow motion for a while so I've always been fascinated with that and so as I've been talking to other people who have used a creative outlet writing acting music could be gardening or cooking it doesn't have to be you know one of the traditional arts but I'm curious about how what your relationship was with your thoughts before the first one, I'll say, and then how that may have changed or your awareness of them as you went through that. And now a second one, if there's been kind of. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the first time it was uh, just a whole lot of denial. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I was really young. I was 22. So oh. my life at that point was just this tunnel vision of, for me at the time I was becoming a high school teacher. Mm. Um, and so I had this thing that I was supposed to be doing and that's what I was going to do for my whole life and nothing would ever go wrong. Mm. <laughs> and um, so when this happened, I had a really hard time understanding it and even processing the reality of my situation. Um, so I'd, I'd gotten a lot of trouble. I was, I'm not a troublemaker, you know, deep down. I'm a rule follower actually. But um, as this happened, um, after my brain surgery, I was in uh, a rehab center for a few weeks, relearning how to walk and see and, you know, do like third grade math problems and stuff that I'm like, what am I, you know, what is this? I didn't even understand why I was there, um, really. And then I would get in a lot of trouble because I would break the rules, you know, hospitals have rules <laughs> and for a reason so that you don't hurt yourself and that so uh, the nurses don't get sued. Uh, so I would, I would walk around, you know, my hospital room and they'd be like, what are you trying to do? Like, you, did you know you can't walk? Like, are you sensing this is hard? Um, and they even threatened to put in like a baby monitor in my room with a oh, little camera. Kidding. Cause I just couldn't trust me. <laughs> I was such a rule breaker. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of processing going on. I was, I was lucid and conscious and my personality was the same none of that changed you know it's it's all my location of my injury is is in the cerebellum which is a lot of motor functions and relearnable skills and um so I was always myself you know through the whole thing but um I just couldn't wrap my head around it uh and then when I started to heal and get better you know throughout the course of that kind of first year and I got I went right back into teaching mm. it was almost like I didn't even know or couldn't process what had happened that happened 
but right. it really didn't. So I'm just a normal person now. Like I broke my and leg and I went into rehab and now I'm back. Yeah. I, yeah. And they cleared me to drive. So how hard could this be? <laughs> and uh, I went back in the classroom after about three months after brain surgery. It was wild. And you could tell that I was a hot mess. Mm. You know, I was a student teacher. So I had, you know, half the load of a normal teacher, but I was like, that. I was underwater, oh. you know, the whole time. So I would say a lot of those thoughts were just denial, refusal to acknowledge that I had limitations and a disability, you know, because it was so invisible. You yeah. know, you know this, like right. you and I, to other people, right. we would look like just any other person. And right. um, unfortunately, that's just not the reality of our situation. So it was a lot of lying to myself <laughs> the first time around. Did you did you journal or write about your experience or or at all? I guess. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't really a writer before this happened, but when I was diagnosed, my friend had said, I mean, you should write a book about this. Uh and I was like, that's a total ridiculous thing to say, but I guess I'll do it because I'm sitting at home you know, with this leaking head before I had the surgery, I was, you know, on bed rest for like five weeks, um, just deteriorating. So I thought, sure, why not? So I popped up my little laptop and started typing and noticed that, you know, my left hand wasn't getting the keys right. So I only could use my right hand. I'm like, this is going to take a really long time. (laughs) Um, But I was, I really was like cataloging um, everything that was happening to me because I, I I knew I couldn't understand it. I was, you know, I knew that I needed to take it down so that maybe later I could work through it. Oh, to write it and, down? Yeah, to just, to just write it down. And, you know, I said I was writing a book, you know, big air quotes, like it's this big joke, but then I actually wrote the thing and then I actually published it. So congratulations. Uh, came out, when did that come you. out? 2000? Um, that one came out in 2018. 2018. 2018. Yeah. That had to have felt good. And I mean, with your sense of humor, obviously your take on the experience would have brought, I mean, that personality into it. This wasn't a, um, just kind of a medical. No, no. It's very far from, very far from. (laughs) I'd even say like, I am not a scientist. Like (laughs) I'm not gonna I don't know what this is called you know right, like right. um because it's just this is it was through my eyes it was just through my experience and I'm grateful that I took it all down as it was happening even like you know after surgery in the rehab center I'd asked my parents to bring me my laptop so I could write okay. um and then it was like I'm gonna keep just taken all this information in and uh it was a hot mess you know it was a jumble of thoughts and things that had happened and people I'd met and weird bits of dialogue you know but eventually you know I worked it out and um put it out into the world so I am very proud of that so and congratulations again on that um effort to just be able to focus with what you were going through, but to have, I mean, the awareness to take down stuff, knowing that you're not understanding, you don't get it all now, but if I want a breadcrumb to be able to come back, you didn't want to rely just on your memory, you know, with all all those kind of details. You have creatively pivoted to a bunch of different outlets. So you did this book, you had a podcast, you're doing this writing. So you can, can you kind of talk about how that progression in your head went to migrate from 
you know, the surgery, then doing the book and then your other creative outlets? Yeah. So, you know, it started with the writing and the book and realizing I had something to say. Uh, Cause not that I was boring before this happened to me, but I didn't really think I had much. You know, I was 22. I was just a 22 yeah. year old gal living in Colorado, you know? Um, so I, I kind of had all these thoughts and ideas and got the, you know, weird idea to go and do stand up one day and talk about the brain surgery and, you know, the nurses telling me your, your head's leaking and the sounds of an MRI machine and uh, you know, it's just ridiculous things that I hadn't heard anyone say before. And so why I put it on the stage. The, why the, the comment, what had you done any, any play work before? Had, um, I done, I done theater. Yeah. Oh, karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> <Girl> karaoke. <laughs> I had done, uh, I was always a theater kid and then I did improv in college, but I'd never done stand up. So it was like this kind of, let's see if I can do it. Yeah. kind of challenge it was really scary like I didn't know anybody who was doing it so it was kind of this weird hair of like creativity really like being like what if I could do that so I just went to an open mic and maybe got the laugh or two or a weird sound here and there yeah. and I thought okay let's okay. try it again next week and um started writing more doing more you know um different content as I started teaching again a lot of some of it was about the students and releasing some of that angst about being a teacher for the first time you know and looking like a kid myself and yeah. having no respect from my children and uh just fighting for my life in there with a brain injury like just please just sit down long <laughs> enough to so I can take attendance like I'm fighting for my life like <laughs> um so the writing and the stand-up went hand in hand um both of those things slowed down quite a bit while I was teaching because I just, I had to survive. I had to be, being a teacher consumed so much of my life at that time. Um, but I started doing some, I was getting better. I was, you know, health wise and confidence wise, I was doing bigger shows. I was inviting people to my shows. I was like, okay, maybe I am a comedian, like capital C, like maybe that's what I am. Um, to the point where I could, I was like, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move uh, to New York City and I'm going to do this and I'm going to get the book published and I'm going to do stand up and exactly. figure my life out and find odd jobs and, you know, kind of ran away from my teaching self in a way, but um, was just so determined to just like, why don't I just do this? Like, the, you know, I've been through enough. Like, how hard could New York be? Oh, very hard, actually. <laughs> no. I don't know where'd you live in New York I lived in Brooklyn yeah up until the pandemic uh and then yeah and then that ended yeah <laughs> so. our eldest daughter lived but, in Brooklyn for a while so we'd go out yeah it, love, love visiting Brooklyn it, love yeah it was it was a fun time of my life it was crazy you know I had to wear these these big headphones around because it's just a, such a loud city as a brain injured person you know it's not an accessible place so I'm lucky that I don't need to use any mobility devices because it's not a very accessible place as you know so um but very fun very exciting um continue to do stand up publish the book um when did the podcast started uh, the podcast was around the same time as the book. I have a hard time just doing one thing at a time. Really? Really? <laughs> I, I, I'm always like, oh, I'm, I have to have my hands 
in everything. So, you know, I was, I was interviewing all these brain scientists as I was doing my book edits for the publisher on this very tight, you know, publishing schedule. Um, like, oh yeah, I, and, and nannying, I was a nanny for a few years there. Nanny. Um, hustling. I had tons of jobs. I was never sitting still. Um, which my parents have always known about me. They, they call me the girl with her hair on fire. Um, so I'm always, you know, I don't like to be extinguished. I I need to be moving and grooving. And I've always been that way. So that hasn't stopped just because of the, uh, the brain. I know when I found out about your podcast and then I listened, I listened to the, the, uh, goodbye to 2020, what the, you know, that one first. And then I went back and listened from the beginning and, uh, the one with, um, Michael, Sheldon, Dr. Michael Shadlin, Sheldon. Yeah. Um, and it's great because this month's or coincidental, this month's um newsletter is about how does how does the brain uh react or uh change with improvisation? And that just kind of came out of the blue sometime. And it turned out that the uh another person I interviewed for the podcast, which is going to be with September, it could have been either one of you because you do the improv with, with uh, comedy, but he's a jazz musician. And when I read about how the, the two parts of the brain, you know, kind of the traffic cop organizer, and then the creative playmaker that when they do the fMRI, they show that the creative part lights up and the other one goes out for coffee or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, Mike Keefe, who's the jazz music doctor, retired doctor, but jazz musician, he always kind of loved. I was curious because his impulse center got hit. And so I was curious in talking with him whether or not that helped his jazz improvisation. Um, but he's still trying to get the you know, the muscle memory back for playing. So he hasn't quite got back to the improvisation section. But then with with comedy, with improv, now you weren't a comedian before. I mean, you didn't do improv before, right? So you can't- I did, I did. did. So how, so then how did, I know yours was back at the cerebellum, but just the, the concept of the, when you improv, having the brain, parts of it go to sleep and light up. How was your experience with that when you were doing improv in the moment of doing improv? Yeah, it's funny because when I first started doing stand up, the first like couple years were very regimented. <laughs> uh, they were very structured in that, like, I memorized every word, I wrote it down, I memorized it, it was airtight. There was not a bit of improvisation, even though I had improv experience because yeah. I was in my head so much about my memory post a brain injury that I thought, you know, I'm going to look like an idiot up there. If I, uh, what, did I, what was I going to say? And I was so fearful of that mm. to the point that I was, I was, uh, you know, just very rigid to, and, and a, a blind comedian, uh, in Denver that I'd worked with after a show, he goes, are you reading off of your paper out of your notebook? I was like, what? He's like, well, that's how it sounds. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> okay that's not what I want it to feel like but I, I was so fearful of letting go it took me a couple years to go okay let's prepare less you know let's you know this and even if you don't how are they gonna know that right so I would start like preparing less or allowing for 
improv or even just looking at the audience you know sometimes when you get on stage and you're I still have stage fright you know that's always been a thing you just kind of look past them look through them and so there's no there's no um interaction, interaction with them but mm-hmm. I, I started like looking at them and seeing what their faces were doing and how they were reacting to me saying I almost died and them being like I'm like, oh no, you look, are you okay? Is this something I said? You know, I would start playing with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that only came after a few years of being like, I got to like relax. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then how did it feel once you did that? It felt good. You know, it was, it was just like more, it was truer to myself, to be honest. Like it was like the first couple of years, I didn't want anybody to know I had a brain injury, like not really. Yeah. And I even stopped doing the brain injury material because I was getting some feedback that like, no one else is doing this, you know, like, what are you kind of doing? So I was fearful and I kind of like closed it off and then did every other kind of material I could think of until I started teaching a stand-up writing and performance class in New York City. And I was teaching these students who had never done stand-up before, but I'm like, preaching like you gotta like find something unique about you that only you can say and one of them goes hey when's the last time you did joke about your brain injury huh I was like oh you got me there yeah (laughs) and and from that point I just kind of leaned into my flaws you know Mm. I would lean into if I trip on stage if I can't get the mic you know if I break the mic I mean how many microphones have I broken oh my gosh like um I started leaning into it and realizing that's actually what people enjoy about me is right. my flaws right and that I'm not trying to be this perfect you know rigid individual that I'm just myself and I'm just like hey I forgot what that word was and that's okay because you didn't even know what I was going to say in the first place so what do you know yeah and I was talking <laughs> so- I was talking on a, a, a phasia um uh where you get your words mixed up or not the right word mm-hmm. program and answering questions and um, I said, the cl- for somebody who has not had a stroke or aphasia experience, that the closest thing I can say is when you're trying to think of a movie or an actor, you know, it's like, you know, it's there, but you can't kind of get it. And that happens, you know, like your entire life, maybe all day. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's yeah. not age related. It's not, you know, everybody's had that experience. So that's the closest to, and it drives you crazy as the person trying to think of what the name is and um, the ad. So I, sometimes when I feel like I'm not getting the last couple words out or can't find the word, I just try to say, okay, it's just like not remember. It's no big deal. It's more like mm-hmm. not remembering an actor's name rather than, oh my God, is this, are you having another stroke or is this, you know, mm-hmm. pressing mm-hmm. for that, you know, kind of thing. So um, talk a little bit about how then you pivoted again or added the, you did the improv writing class, but now you're doing some writing coaching classes. So how did that yeah. in your progression, did you drop yes. one ball and pick that one up or you just said, okay, I'm done with that stuff. So now I'm going to go focus on this. Yeah. You know, uh, as hard as I tried to avoid teaching, <laughs> I, I, I naturally fell back into it because I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I went from kind of teaching comedy and writing classes in New York to um, doing it as really freelance on the side. Um, I would pick up a few clients here and there, um, work with them on writing their short stories or working on their blog or, you know, writing an email. 
um, people whose first language wasn't English. Mm. Um, so that's how it started. And that's been going on for some time now. And um, this year, after a year of unemployment and, you know, leaving LA with a new brain bleed and taking some time to just go on walks and take naps. Mm -hmm. um, I started looking for jobs again and I was just so frustrated because I'm just like, none of this fits for me. Like none of this makes sense. I don't want to do a full-time job. I can't go back to teaching. Um, you know, I want something remote. I want something flexible. Um, and one of my clients, my longest, you know, standing client was like, why don't you just do this full-time? Like, mm -hmm. Or and, what if you got like 10 you more? Yeah. yeah. What if you just got 10 more of me and you just did this, you know, all day, every day. And I was like, oh, there's an idea. Uh, so I, um, I started my business um, this year, 2023. And um, the second that I, I kind of came out about it, like it was like a coming out. It was like, hey guys, I do this. And then all of a sudden these people that I've known for years are like, that's perfect timing because I'm writing a book or I want to do this poetry thing. Like all these people just kind of started coming to me and I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, and the same thing with, you know, having written a book myself, like people have always come to me over the years and asked me, how do you do it? Let's go to coffee. Can I ask you, you know, just get a brain dump of like how to write a book in like a three hour coffee session. And I was doing that for a while until I went, huh, all right. <laughs> it's worth more than the cost of the cost you buy me a coffee yes it is uh it is huh. yeah so you, that's that's the newest adventure and when did you stop the podcast in 2020 mm -hmm. and the but last podcast implied you were going to continue so what happened yes how, how did that go yes um you know I started with a friend uh producing friend and um she put out the first few episodes with me and then jumped ship and so then I was just doing it all myself and I was in New York and the book was coming out and I was working like five jobs so I was like man and I wasn't putting them out consistently enough and um after that one I was like I don't know if I can like manage this um I would love I really want to jump back into it and there's I have lists of people that I want to interview so it, it's something that like I'm going to do it's just a matter of like can I figure out how to do it consistently enough on my own and have a cadence that works for me mm -hmm. or should I you know work with some other people and maybe pivot maybe make it you know something new but I mean I, I love the initial concept and um the fact that anybody listens to it is still amazing to me so I'm like what someone listened to my podcast like what <laughs> I know I know when I reached that when I reached out because I, I just you know it was such an exciting thing and um had some early momentum but it, it is hard to put out you know you know this it's hard to put it out especially if it's just um yourself doing it so I'm looking forward to Mimi and the Brain season two uh when, when that will be has <laughs> we'll yet to see. be we'll discovered <laughs> yeah. uh, so then another question I wanted to ask you is and I know that because your brain injury there isn't a genetic reason or a cause that the doctors or you have been able to come up with. So you're in a slightly different category, I guess. But in terms of advice to somebody who's recently had a brain injury, just in terms of how you approach it, what would your advice be to somebody who's just had, you know, it's kind of coming up for air, 
because mm. when, when you have it right away, it's like you're one foot in front of the other. But as you start letting other things in, what would your advice be to them? That's such a good question. Um, I would say community. I would say community 100% because when you're going through it, you really don't know anyone else who is. And that's how I genuinely felt um, the first couple of years. I didn't know anybody else ever had had a brain injury or if they were, they were, you know, older people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was Instagram that became a place to meet people. And I think it was maybe 20... 18 um march is brain injury awareness month and i'd learned this fact and i went okay every day of march i'm going to post something about my brain injury cuz i want i was teaching that class and i was like you know i should really get back into this part of myself that i haven't allowed myself to really own fully um and oddly enough i posted a, a photo of me wearing my uh headphones on the subway um and this random podcaster guy with a brain injury popped into my inbox and said we're the same like I wear headphones all day every day we should be friends we both have brain injuries we should be friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and now that's a very good friend of mine and um there's so many stories like that there's so many people I've connected to over the years mm-hmm. um you know young people older people I mean it's just there's so many of us out there you think you're alone but you're just not yeah. and the only people that can really understand where you're at and make you feel like there is hope are other people like you. Mm-hmm. And so seek them out, you know, find groups, you know, if, if support groups are not your thing, like get on social media, mm-hmm. um, listen to a podcast, hit up the podcaster themselves, like do an interview, you know, like there's just so many ways to connect and to feel like you're not alone and to consume that content. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you, you might be surrounded by very well-meaning loved ones who just don't know how to express what you're going through or maybe can't understand it to the level that you need them to. So listen to a stroke podcast, you know, like find a new friend, go to a meetup, you know, um, there's lots of people out there that want exactly the same thing. And it can be very healing, um, especially when you first go through your recovery. And I think with COVID, one of the silver linings with COVID where before it was so not um, uh, a preference to remotely FaceTime, Zoom, all of that. It became a fact of life. And so now, I mean, there's Zoom fatigue, but it, it it opens up the door of who you can communicate with. And it doesn't have to be in the city that you're in or the country that you're in. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You got to deal with time zones, but you, know, um, you can have, you can develop relationships kind of around the globe. And I think the thing that struck me once I started leaning into, you know, letting the denial kind of go off when I had the um, chapbook with poems about my stroke published where I didn't want to talk about it, but when you go to readings, you got to talk mm. about it, mm-hmm. um, was that uh, strokes are increasing and they're hitting younger people and being debilitating, you know, because people are living longer. So it's not as if it's just the old grandmas like my grandmother and my mom when she got into her 90s having strokes. I was 49, which was young, but you were really young. And so I think that the the awareness around it, you know, I want more on prevention, but right now the awareness of about how a stroke, unfortunately, is very prevalent um, has got a 
uh, a silver lining to it because there are more people you can connect with, sadly. Um, but hopefully with that mix, we'll, you know, for things that can be preventable, not in your case, um, a couple other people I've talked to, there was no genetic reason or, you know, stress impact. Um, but to have an awareness about it so that people can get the help that they need, you know, sooner. Mm -hmm. uh, do you mm -hmm. have advice for um, caregivers? You kind of touched on that. Mm. Immediate family members, the the well-intended don't know what to do, but what would be your mm -hmm. advice to them? Yeah, I would say just listen more than you talk. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, chances are like, like I said, they're, they're well-meaning, but um, they're having their own process they're having their own experience with what you're going through um my my parents are very supportive um are they going to crack up at my jokes about my near death you know what no and that's okay um yeah. they experienced a huge trauma with me and so the more that um I can be honest with them the more that they can understand and to have that space to talk even yeah. if it's not used or they're not ready like just always providing space um taking care of yourself as a caregiver so that you're not burned out. Yeah. Um, that's a big thing too, because again, it's such a trauma to a relationship, a family, you know, um, a friendship. Yeah. There are friends that I really traumatized out there and uh, they're probably still coping with some things. And now the second one's doing its thing. They're going, I mean, yeah, they're going through it again uh, <laughs> a second time. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Thank yeah. you, Mimi, so much oh, for yeah, this was lovely. And the 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 breadth of what you've still embraced despite what you went through. And I mean, part of that was you were so freaking young. You know, it's like you were at that phase of your life where you pivot, whether you knew you were going to or not. But you were that young that life comes at you different ways, and this just sideswiped you in a in a big way when you did it. Um, is there anything else that you want to? Add that I didn't ask you any parting words of wisdom. Uh, you know, just have faith. Like what you're going through now, like this is a moment in time and it does get better. It does change. You're never going to be stuck in the same situation. It, you're always going to adapt and grow. And um, I would say that for anyone listening that's having that experience, you're more resilient than you think. Thank you so much for taking the time and enjoy Scotland. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye, Beth. Thanks for joining me this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a comment, and subscribe. Until next month, take a moment and hug someone you love.